are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up with the second volume, which we started a couple weeks ago. And today we are on page 32 with number 18 at the very top of the page. And uh, we've been talking talking quite a bit, bit over these few months, really, about uh, the nature of humility and the, the its importance in the spiritual life. And again, it's uh, being unlike the other virtues that containing all of them within it, but also part of the very essence of God, of how he has revealed himself to us, uh, this humble, self-sacrificing love. And so to form and fashion it within the mind and the heart uh, by grace and by the ascetic life is to enter into a very deep intimacy with the Lord. And uh, we've moved on to discuss discernment, which is the fruit of it in the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, last week. But uh, we are continuing along with the discussion of humility in the Evergatinos. And in a particular light, uh, we've talked a good bit about self-abasement. But uh, we're also talking about how it is that we receive the praise of others as well. Uh, how both things can have an effect upon uh, our ego. Whenever we find ourselves insulted or diminished or when we are praised and uh, for something that we've uh, done and uh, held in high esteem in the eyes of others, how is it that we respond to these things without it leading us into a kind of self-focus and drawing us away from God or gratitude for his grace? And so again, we're picking up on page 32 with number 18. Abba Poyman said, whatever difficulty comes your way, it can be overcome by silence. Uh, I found myself meditating upon this little saying quite a bit. And um, especially again, in a day and age where there is so much talking, so much noise, and that uh, our response to the realities around us, the things that people say to us, is often done thoughtlessly and quickly and sometimes abrasively. That Abba Poyman's counsel here is a good one. Whatever difficulty comes your way. And so whether we are talking about the praise or excessive praise of others or the insult, insults of others that 
neither of these difficulties can't be overcome by silence, that to remain quiet and to hold our minds and our hearts steady in Christ and focused upon Christ uh, brings us through all of these kind of trials and, uh, and allows them to pass. Uh, often we will respond very quickly to the emotions that are stirred within the heart by what people say to us. And certainly those are hard to control. They often will arise very quickly, swiftly. But if we do have this capacity to restrain our speech, then half the battle is won. Uh, our hearts might be raging in one way or another, longing to say something in response. But if we can hold ourselves steady, then often we can find a clearer path forward, allow God uh, to speak a word in that silence that illuminates things for us. And so it's a very good bit of counsel, uh, though brief. Uh, I think it takes us right where we need to be. Number 19, it is said of an elder that whenever someone insulted him or thought someone was angry at him, the more closely he drew to that person, they, he was accustomed to say, becoming, become the cause of achievements for those who are aware of it. On the contrary, those who praise us mislead and upset our soul, the soul, as it is said in the Holy Scriptures, those who lead praise uh, the cause thee to err. And so an interesting thought that one would draw close to and befriend the individual who insults you <laughs> is not something we would tend to do in our day-to-day -day life. We would uh, seek to avoid those who cause us this kind of grief. Uh, you know, admittedly, in a monastery, things might be somewhat different. You're living with them and have to live with them after you've committed yourself. And so uh, seeing the spiritual fruit of this, that there is a kind of rubbing off of the rough edges that comes with living with those who uh, can be difficult. Uh, and uh, sometimes we lose sight of that that we turn people into enemies in our minds or those that are to be avoided uh, rather than drawing close to them. And uh, our tendency to seek praise uh, can you know, make us run after individuals who hold us in high esteem. And uh, you know, I don't want to be overly strident in this, but I think there can then be created within the mind and the heart, uh, a longing to do things that are going to meet with the approval and acceptance of others. And uh, it doesn't take very long in this life to realize that that's not going to be true, that it's rare that you're going to be able to please everyone. And uh, so to be prepared for that in one way, or another, I think, is important. Letter G from Abba Isaiah. Abba Isaiah said, if out of mean-spiritedness your brother should enter into dispute with you, happily tolerate him. And if you examine your thoughts as though God were judging you, 
you will find that you have sinned. No, on the surface, this can be a rather jarring statement uh, because immediately I think there's a part of us that wants to say, well, no, that can't be tr true. You know, if somebody says something against us or is mean-spirited, that we should tolerate it because if we search hard enough, that we we will see that we have sinned. And uh, but the the reality of things is that in, in the mind, in the heart, things are often so changeable from moment to moment. The attitudes that we have toward God, towards others, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, uh, our thoughts, our attitudes can shift from moment to moment. And uh, often there can be uh, mixed in with things, a, a spirit of ingratitude, uh, a, a spirit of pride, harshness in our judgment of others. And often we will be allowed to experience such things, even mean-spiritedness, uh, in order to illuminate something within us, even if it is our reaction, initial reaction to it. Often it takes us a while to uh, calm the heart, to be able to, to search it as deeply as we are being asked to here. Uh, now, you know, I think we want to acknowledge that there can be circumstances that are toxic and are, are abusive. Uh, and one has to be aware of that. Uh, but we often do not give enough attention to some of the more hidden attitudes that we carry within us or that we uh, see as acceptable, I think, for ourselves in relation to other people, that we can be around those who we dislike, who whose personalities just grate on us or who have treated us uh, poorly or who have ignored us uh, or ignore what we do, uh, perhaps for ages, it seems. And so our vision of them can be jaded. We can lose sight of the dignity of the other person. And, uh, and this can affect the way that people engage us. And I think Abba Isaiah puts his finger on something here. Sometimes uh, people's response to us can be a counter-transference, just as our, we can have a certain reaction to others uh, because of something they produce within our hearts, that analysts often will have this experience. They uh, you know, often don't reveal anything of themselves to the other person, uh, but they they begin to notice in the context of the analysis, having very strong feelings about the analysand, the person on the couch. And sometimes they can have hatred or anger towards the person they're supposed to be serving. And it often illuminates something very important, both about the other person, uh, about what is going on in their life. It can be often a clue 
you know, that they're giving rise to a certain emotional reaction within my own heart. But I think they can also reveal uh, a weak spot, a blind spot, a hard spot within ourselves as well. That what they're saying, their particular personality attitude uh, evokes from us uh, a kind of aggression, perhaps towards the other. And this is where I think the, the Desert Fathers are very astute, that even though they don't think about things or communicate them in the same way as a modern analyst would, I think they saw the same things emer emerging in our struggle with sin, that sometimes people can treat us in a mean-spirited way because of something that they are perhaps experiencing from us too that they, we give rise to something within them because we've treated them poorly or bear them ill will within our minds and our hearts or have at some point. And so uh, this is why I say, you know, I don't want to be strident about anything that's said in any of these sayings, but I think they do compel us to look at the subtle movements of the mind and the heart, that we are capable of eliciting actions and behaviors from others from the ways that we treat them or fail to love them and fail to treat them with respect. And it, it doesn't excuse perhaps the mean-spiritedness with, with which somebody uh, engages us, but we often have our part to play within that if we are humble and truthful with ourselves, that if we've given ourselves over to years of, you know, having this kind of hypercritical attitude towards another, then we can't expect that they aren't going to pick up on that in some way and maybe dislike us for, for you know, their own reasons or unknown. So sorry about that. That was a long, long-winded way of going around that but i think it's important to sort of dig a little deeper here because when you think about men living in a community and doing so for life that on a day-to-day -day basis even though they talk very little that you know there are going to be certain feelings and thoughts that give you know that arise within the human heart towards other members of the community and you might find yourself being treated in a mean-spirited way by another person. How do you respond to that? How does a monk who's seeking purity of heart and humility uh, respond to that reality? Does he search his own heart? Uh, or does he first move to the defensive position, saying, I'm being poorly treated for no reason? And I don't think the Desert Fathers are willing to let themselves off that easy. <laughs> Sometimes we can provoke people. Number two, to humble your soul before God will render you capable of enduring insult without becoming upset. And the tears shed thereby deliver one from all human things. Failure to accuse oneself leads one to fail at enduring the wrath of others 
So how is it that we love like Christ? In particular, how is it that we love like Christ on the cross? Where there is hatred or vindictiveness directed towards us, even violence. And how do we respond by not giving it back uh, with tw twice the strength? Uh, because we feel justified in doing so. Or we are wounded because of what has been said. How do we choose the, the higher path, as it were? How do we allow love to trump uh, certain scenarios like this where we let go of our pride in order to allow peace to remain within the community as well as within our own hearts? And so Isaiah says here, our unwillingness to accuse ourselves or to look at ourselves first or to wonder will never allow us to endure the wrath of others, whether it is deserved or undeserved. Number three, he who is humble is unmoved by the derision of others. Since his own sins, when he recalls them, become for him an arsenal of weapons that protect him from anger and the desire to retaliate. And so he withstands patiently all that befalls him. For what accusation can be made by anyone that is worse than that which he feels before God at the remembrance of his sins? So... I don't know if many of us would view our past sins in such a way, an arsenal of weapons that protect us against anger that would be directed towards others, that we would allow, allow the remembrance of our own sin, protect us from the remembrance of wrongs committed by others, and uh, that these become the weapons that protect us from retaliating. And, you know, if, you know, you only have to look around on a day to day basis to see how short people's fuses are, that they will retaliate over things that are sh shocking at times. You think, where has any sense of patience, let alone the sense of one's own dignity or the other's dignity, gone? that one could respond with such violence. And, um, you know, and I think part of the answer is our lack of asceticism, our lack of willingness to look at the human heart and engage in the spiritual life in such a way that we have become capable, you know, religious or not, capable of the, the greatest anger and violence and abuse, um, you know, without perhaps giving it much, much thought. Dave, <clears throat> Dave mm -hmm. do you think that's because maybe the, the people are rebelling against God? Because wouldn't that be in a sense, if they're behaving like that, it's kind of rebelling of what God says. So it's not even the people, it's even a higher realm. It's that, that kind of like when we saw all those riots, it's like it's this rebellion against God in a way, you know what I mean? The hatred and all that. Well, I think that's what it's been from the beginning. 
you know, rebellion against God, that he who created us with love, uh, we, Patience. we, yeah, we, we move out of that position or tempted to, uh, not to live in relationship to him as God. Right. But seek to take and seize for ourselves that position, you know, who, you know, I have a right to, to do what yeah. I want with my own life. Uh, is typically our rebelling against God in right. one form or another. And we will say that to ourselves in, in one fashion or another, maybe not in those words, but whenever we are willful in our actions, you know, towards God or towards ourselves, there is a rebellion there. And I think, you know, certainly uh, our culture has moved to more of this, you know, individualistic, uh, kind of way of not only uh, pursuing what they want within life, but uh, an individualistic way of uh, determining what is real or not real, what is true, what is not true, what is moral or immoral. There is, you know, no source of truth, objective truth beyond the self. And that's a pretty powerful narcissistic tendency and when a culture becomes imbued with it yeah. then we're going to see you know all sorts of things begin to emerge that are quite shocking i think it's shocking within ourselves when we see ourselves act in a way that is purely driven by our own will where we do something that we know that is not pleasing to god or that is uh, hurtful and we know that it's going to be hurtful to another but we're driven by a passion yeah. but i think when we look around our world today and we see you know ju just how violent and ugly it can be it, it can it sort of magnifies everything that is being said here you know yeah. a thousandfold yeah. All right. number c number four he who can, for the sake of God, endure the harsh words of an impolite and stupid person, and thereby keep his thoughts at peace, the same is able to attain peace of body, mind, and soul. And if these three are in harmony and cease turning their weapons against the rule of the spiritual faculty and cut off its captivity by the flesh, then such a person will be called a son of peace and the Holy Spirit will abide in him that he might be wholly his and he will not depart from him. Great saying. And, you know, we've talked before about uh, what. Hold on for one second. Here. I'm sorry. We've talked before about the the father's understanding of the faculties of the soul, which is being what is being discussed here, and um, in particular the insensitive faculty. And when a person has attained a level, a certain level of peace, then this faculty is being formed and guided by the 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 spirit of God in such a way that it has its proper object, which is sin. 
that one seeks to strike that down or temptation. And when one has attained peace of body, mind, and soul, the whole self, then one truly becomes a son of peace, a true peacemaker, that uh, there's nothing ag aggressive directed toward the other, or nothing hateful directed towards the other, and that the Holy Spirit abides in him. Uh, because the spirit is a spirit of peace. And again, you know, this is a hard thing for us to imagine that we, I think, could be free of all, all uh, that would drive us to anger, harsh words here uh, from an impolite or stupid person, you know, someone who has no understanding of some of us or maybe of uh, the circumstances at hand. And yet if we're able to receive that and not act upon it in such a way that we feel that we have to defend the truth or defend ourselves, that we don't place that above the dignity of the other person, nor above love, charity, or patience, that that's true, true freedom. And, you know, often the argument is made, you know, about, you know, doesn't love demand that we correct others and, uh, you know, to speak the truth to them. And, you know, on some level, that is true. Uh, but when it comes from a heart that has not been purified, and where this faculty has not been shaped by the grace of God, then we risk doing greater harm, not, not correcting a person fraternally, but wounding them, that we are reacting again in, in a way that wishes to, to humiliate or diminish or, or to gain for oneself a position of emotional power over the other. You remember I've talked about within the oratory, there was that position of one that one held of corrector in the house that he had, if somebody was not following the role that he had to go to him privately to talk to him. And it was not a coveted position uh, because, you know, typically it would be given to one of the eldest, you know, priests and one who was known for his humility and his own obedience and uh but who also understood the dangers and some of the stories that went along with that you know that their concern or anxiety of having corrected too harshly often made them do penance and prostrate themselves you know they would often turn up at their brother's door with their cassock covered and dust because they had prostrated themselves in their rooms thinking you know i said that too harshly you know, I probably I might have driven that person to despair, anxiety, or or anger. And you know, again, I think that's something hard for us to to understand because we we often will elevate the abstract truth in our mind, which is often abstract, not a person for us, unfortunately. Uh, but we often make an, uh, something abstract that we are elevating above the other, 
above the person in whom God dwells. And when we do that, we do immeasurable harm. And, you know, I think this is part of what the evil one does, you know, to per precisely to convince us this person is stupid beyond being impolite and they aren't worthy of our showing them any measure of respect or kindness or gentleness. Number five, brother, you should believe that the insults and dishonor visited on you for the sake of the Lord are of great profit and to the salvation of your soul. Therefore, accept them readily and without upset with the thought, I deserve to suffer even more on account of my sins and whatever the Lord disdains is of great value for me. Perhaps you should further think with great tribulations and dishonor that I have experienced, I have become, if even for a moment, an imitator of the passions of my God. As many times as you recall those who cause you torment, pray for them with your whole heart and sincerely as though they were the cause of great profit without complaining about them in the least. Now, you know, this is unsettling and it's, you know, this image and perfect of perfect humility uh, that is hard for us to take hold of. Uh, but something nonetheless that we do need to take hold of. And again, in light of Christ, the perfectly innocent one who was crucified on our behalf and bore the sin of the world. And we are not simply comparing ourselves to others or, uh, you know, responding to them simply in light of what they say or do to us, that all of creation itself has been transformed in and through the incarnation and in and through the cross of Christ. And so we no longer can look at ourselves or the other in the same way. And, uh, and so when we are treated a certain way, we strive to look deep within ourselves again uh, at our own sin, you know, what might be purifying uh, in these circumstances if God permits it in, in his providence, uh, or how perhaps we are being drawn uh, into the, the very passion of the Lord himself. Uh, itself being, you know, called to participate in, in, in the Lord's suffering. Uh, as St. Paul says, we make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You know, that we are one of the gifts that is given to us in the intimacy that we share with the Lord is that nothing that we experience, including the deepest crosses, uh, can deprive us of him. In fact, it draws us closer to him, the holy innocent one. Uh, is it Amale? I don't want to mispronounce your name. I'm sorry. I'm newly relearning the Christian faith, so I apologize if this is off track. But it seems to me that every reaction that is caused between the world or another person and myself 
is what I take to the vertical of the cross between me and God. The horizontal between me and others is for their service only. Well, wow, that's a, a very beautiful way of seeing things, you know, of tying what it is that we experience on a horizontal level. And, you know, in terms of uh, even a linear sense of time in, in regards to our life and experience to the eternal entering into that and taking hold of it. And so now everything that we experience is experienced in light of what has been revealed to us by God. And so our whole identity, and again, the, the meaning of the actions of others and how we respond to those actions is to change. And, you know, this is something that requires a kind of meditation daily. You know, there was a religious sister that I'd worked with for years, and every single day in her community, and even when she was out working on her own, she would say the Stations of the Cross, and uh, which typically Catholics, Latin Rite Catholics would do during Lent. Uh, but every single day, this was a part of her spiritual life to meditate deeply upon the passion of Christ. And, um, and so to understand this, but also to have minds and hearts that are formed after that of Christ requires a day, daily meditation upon it and practice of it, embracing it. Uh, Vanessa writes, goes back to love of God and love of thy neighbor. That includes love of our enemies. Right. And so this is what we are being called to, you know, Christ himself says, you know, even, you know, robbers, crooks, the worst of people love their, their family members and their friends. What makes the Christian distinct is that we love our enemies. We love all. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, this is not something that we pick up from reading in a book. It's really something that is understood within the human heart that prays, that receives the sacraments, studies the scriptures, the fathers, seeks to embody it. And, you know, I think when we look at the Christian community itself, you know, this is where it should be embodied the most. You know, this is the new way of living in light of Christ. And there should be something that stands out about us that is unique. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned here once before, a philosopher from Franciscan University, uh, John White, who gave a talk on, you know, the philosopher in an age of terror. And it's, you know, his, the whole premise of his talk was that more than ever, you need the presence of philosophers, you know, those who are thinking about these realities on a very deep level in order that we aren't driven or provoked by, again, emotion or other factors in terms of our 
of our actions. And one might equally say, well, what is the place of a Christian? And uh, not, you know, not only a post-Christian age, but, you know, an age that has set aside truth and morality, you know, sort of in this kind of unparalleled fashion, you know, what witness is it that we, we give and we bring? And we know in certain ages that has been martyrdom. You know, do not resist one who is evil. You know, the most heroic kind of love. Number five. Brother, you should believe that the insults... No, I'm sorry, I already read that one. Number six. Contrarily, as though they entailed fearful death, the destruction of your soul and eternal damnation, completely turn away from and despise all love of power and glory and the desire for various laudations of men. I found myself writing this one down today <laughs> to, to think about. And so, okay, what, what is to be our response? Abba Isaiah asked, or uh, uh, ask us, and he, and he tells us, oh, this is our response, that even if it involves death, destruction, eternal damnation, uh, we turn away with all of our might and despise all love of power, of glory, of desire for laudations of men, all the ways that this world holds out before us uh, to elevate ourselves above the other or to place ourselves in the position of God. Which is an extraordinary thing to say. He's basically saying that, you know, I, I'm willing to embrace the unthinkable. Even we should, you know, even damnation itself, rather than give ourselves over to these realities. I, I don't know how much stronger a person could be in articulating what it is that we should hold a value, which is the things of the kingdom and what has been revealed to us in Christ. Number seven, sternly look at yourself. If someone should upset you about any matter whatsoever, and sadness or anger should be roused within you. Remain silent and say no more than what you must until your heart is first made calm by prayer and after you have cleared up things with your brother. So again, you know, to remain silent when the heart is tossed about and until things calm, and until you've had the opportunity to clear things up with your brother, to discuss things, to unpack them, to understand. So to suspend judgment and to seek to understand why things are developing in the way they are between the two of you. 
that takes great emotional and spiritual maturity to be able to do that. To hold oneself in one speech and then to really and truly with true honesty seek to understand what is going on in the mind and the heart of other within another without judging it because it could be completely off what they might be thinking or do, doing might might be in truth you know a misjudgment or or simply wrong altogether but still our understanding of that is what should be guiding us in how we look at them guiding us in the sense of compassion rather than justifying you know our hatred or contempt for them So that's a lot from Abba Isaiah. Anyone have anything they would like to add? Sean writes, is number six against nature? I mean, man is hierarchical by nature, like uh, troops of apes. Let me look at number six again. Uh, well, you know, contrary, to, is it against nature? I would say yes. Because it's supernatural. What we're called to is supernatural love. And nature might tell us to run like heck or to stand and fight and, you know, defend oneself. And uh, but what has been revealed to us is to, to love and to love one's enemies and even not to resist uh, one who's evil. And so to move away from this sense of ourselves as I'm only human, which is what we will often say to ourselves when we fall into a particular sin or when we do something that we know is not in accord with the gospel. And we use that as, as an excuse. I'm only human. And, well, once we've been baptized, it's no longer true. We now share and participate in the very life of God and are called to something far, far greater. And so, you know, I, I think the fact that so often these sayings do seem contrary to nature to us is a good thing. Because it 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 makes us think, stop and think. Well, what, why is that so? You know, is there something wrong with that? Then, you know, are they speaking here, you know, in a way that's crazy, or are they connecting with revelation in a way that perhaps is uh, too striking? That strikes to the heart and makes me feel uncomfortable. Any other thoughts? Can I, I, I just don't type as good as everybody else. But my thought is sometimes that thing we hate in that person, could it be in us, you know, and that maybe it's inside of us. It's kind of like when you have children, they're little, you don't see them, they grow up. And then maybe you've learned to overcome something, mm -hmm. but yet you'll see that part of you in the child, like, oh no, like I told <laughs> <laughs> like, oops, I didn't even say to my daughter, she's, oh my God, my. I'm like, sorry, that was my fault, you know, because <laughs> they <laughs> they learned something that instead of like, but I, I know a priest told me one time, sometimes she said, if you see that in, an, 
that angers you, maybe that resides, could reside inside of me. Yeah. The part I don't want to see, maybe that's what they're saying, to look inside of yeah. yourself. Absolutely. I think often we will project things onto others that is true within ourselves or even dominant within ourselves. It's sort of like seeing, uh, you know, the speck in your brother's eyes uh, when you have a log in your own. And so the person who has a log in their own is going to see logs everywhere. Everywhere. And so yeah. they're going to see that person has a log, that person has a log. Everybody's treating me this way. And when in reality, you know, it's the thing that's most dominant yeah. within, within ourselves. So absolutely true. Did it say Francis said that he thought he would have been the, had he not come to Christ, he would have been the worst sinner? Like, because it's, it's like that whole, because he was totally wholeheartedly. I guess if there's a halfway point when you're halfway and it's more torment, you ought to just go all the way. Because mm -hmm. it seems more tormenting when you're halfway in. All right. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. One foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world can be the most painful of realities. Okay. So we'll move on then to Abba Mark. The scorn of men creates grief in the heart. However, it becomes the occasion for sanctification for one who endures it. If you wish to be praised by men without being censured for this, be keen to check your sins. Whatever shame one puts up with for the truth of Christ, a hundred times more will be he ultimately be glorified by the world in order to inherit future things, it is best to work for every good. When you see that some inner thought is urging you to seek the glory of men, know well that this thought is setting you up for disgrace. And so, you know, our desire should be to love and give ourselves in love and to treat others well. And, uh, and if there's fruit to that, then so be it. You know, our Lord tells Peter, okay, when he asks, what am I to get out of this? And he says, well, you'll get family and friends and homes and all kinds of stuff and persecutions. Uh, you know, so there are blessings that come from loving and giving oneself in love. Uh, but, you know, Mark warns here that if we begin to do all these things uh, with the idea of seeking glory, to be recognized by others, then we know that disgrace will soon follow because again, the self has uh, taken the dominant position there. We're seeking, we're turning it back into an earthly glory rather than saying to ourselves, by your grace, for your glory, we begin doing things simply for our own sake and to be seen by others in a certain way. Number two, the root of disgraceful desire in human praise, just as the root of wisdom, is the control of evil. And not just when we hear praise, but when we accept it. When you are injured or scorned or rejected by someone, do not think about the present, but rather anticipate the future life. And you will find that this person has been the cause of many good things, not only in the present, but in the future age. 
So, you know, this desire for human praise, you know, is this is the control, uh, uh, just as the root of wisdom is the control of evil, uh, and not just when we hear praise, but when we accept it. So, you know, there will inevitably be people who will praise us for certain things. And this we might not be able to control. But, what, but when we begin to accept it and hunger for it is where uh, we find ourselves slipping uh, again into a self-focus. But again, you know, we have this kind of refrain over and over again throughout the text of being able to see that there is something that endures with unto eternity that is produced within us. Uh, and that is hu humility. That whatever we bear, and we if we bear these insults, and we bear them with love uh, for the other and love for God, then far from it taking something from us, we are being given something, that it is a blessing. If you see someone praise you hypocritically, at the same time expect to be slandered by him. When you are present, presented with some insult from men, keep in mind that you will be repaid in glory from God. And if in the instance of being insulted, you remain settled without being grieved, then in the instance of being praised, should it come, you will be found faithful and irreproachable. So, an interesting thought that um, when uh, you are praised hypocritically, that you should expect to be slandered, that uh, you know, we're often raised up on a pedestal only to be knocked off. And a number of times we've talked about a kind of morbid delight that can be found in that, in life, by diminishing others in the eyes of others. And, uh, and especially when they do have some natural defect or flaw that manifests itself. And, uh, and so people can take great joy in that. And so we have to be aware of that, that, you know, don't for a moment be seduced by the praise of others, because uh, even more quickly, you can be, they can seek to bring you down in the eyes of others. And so if you're able to endure this, to be insulted, then you'll also be able to endure uh, being praised without being afflicted by it. One will strengthen the other. If by the allowance of God, you have the praise of many, take care not to mingle any ostentation with the providence of God, by which you were granted praise, so that you do not become proud and fall thereby to something contrary to God's providence. When you see someone weeping and suffering because of the insults paid to him, know that because he is overcome by the thought of vainglory, 
he is reaping, without knowing so, the bounty of the evil seeds planted in his heart. He who loves pleasure is made sad by slander and maltreatment. On the contrary, he who loves God is saddened by laudations and the other surfeits. So, again, you know, com coming at this thought in a slightly different way. You know, if one is praised, you know, don't uh, let it become mingled with ostentation. You know, don't take hold of it and uh, strut, as it were, you know, seeking that even that 15 minutes of fame kind of thing that uh, someone might praise, praise you for something, you know, within one's heart to acknowledge the providence of God or the action of God bringing about any kind of good. Uh, in and through you, uh, but don't become proud over it. And if we do see a person, most especially ourselves, becoming upset uh, by uh, what is said of us, then you know we have to realize that the seeds have been planted within our hearts already, that they existed there prior to the insult, and that would be the, the seed of vainglory. That having uprooted those, you know, the mistreatment should not lead us into sorrow. So how, you know, how is this sitting with it? We've gone through a couple authors here. Uh, Abba Isaiah, Abba Mark. Any uh, thoughts on what is being said here? It's a much it's a much different vision of of life and response to others and how they treat us. Anybody terribly uncomfortable with it? I think that every time I hear that vainglory, I'm like, oh no! If <laughs> <laughs> you told all that, I'm like, oh, not that word again, because I guess it's so scary. Because I think it resides in every human being. And had it not been for Christ, we would have went that way. But I always think of roads. There's two roads in life. Mm -hmm. There's the lower road and there's the high road. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And it's learning to stay on the higher road, which, you know, just like if you have a hike, it's not easy to go uphill, you know. Nothing it's not, you know, everybody wants it easy, but it's a lot of um death. It's the opposite of what the world is. It's totally opposite of what the world is. Absolutely. So it has it's a kill. I used to always say to Bob Paul, oh, I'm on the grill. I've got to be flipped over. You know, just the constant dying of the flesh. You know what I mean? Because all the praise. But then I was thinking, but what if you say, like, thank you to somebody. They're doing a good job. That's not really praise. You're talking about when you say praise, it's like, oh, you're great. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're so smart. Like, what is praise then of man? Is it just saying, if somebody does a really good job, it's nice to say thank you, did a good job. Right. There's a difference between gratitude. And the praise, I think what you're talking about is the yeah. um the building of the flesh almost, the the, the okay. mind, not the heart. And I think one can acknowledge gifts and gifts being from God without idolizing the other or uh, allowing it to become a temptation to to vainglory. 
And, you know, we, again, we live in a day where vainglory is uh, rewarded. You know, people make a career out of being influencers on yeah. online. Yeah. Uh, of sort of shaping how people view the world and self and fashion and all sorts of things. And yeah. uh, so to put oneself out there and to make oneself the center of attention. And so, again, you know, to hear this, that, you know, we are to use these very things that people say as weapons to protect ourselves from that, I think would be very foreign to yeah. the more modern mindset. Louise, you have a comment? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, although I'm a uh, retired clinical psychologist, over the last several years, I tend to see people's reactions towards me in two ways. One is that it comes from the psyche of the person, uh, either praise um, or attack, let's put it this way. Um, but I also tend to see it coming from the evil one, mm -hmm. slipping through the person. Mm -hmm. And these have a particular quality. Uh, this praise is particularly slippery, mm -hmm. um, and the attacks are particularly cruel. They're really like a knife being, a dart being sent. And I think, especially in the second one, mm -hmm. um, it's absolutely important that we do not react, mm -hmm. that we see it for what we see. And I don't know if the Desert Father... Uh, we're addressing that part or will address that part, but that was my comment. Yeah, that's very well put. And, you know, I think the evil one does know the chinks in the armor, you know, where to strike and what is going to be most deadly, either in terms of leading a person to vainglory or leading to a wound, wounding them, mm -hmm. where, where the person is most vulnerable and uh, and even can sort of capitalize on our familiarity with another person as well to use that or to lead us to use that to really allow our words to become piercing and wounding and uh, and so to magnify uh, I think what the other person is seeing in such a way that they s strike out uh, in a particularly vicious way, where it under, can undermine relationship that has existed for years, friendships, or within family itself. Uh, but, you know, if the evil one is the father of lies, then, you know, he's, he's going to use all of these things in order, again, to convince us that this is the identity of the other. And that you know, leads us to strike that person with the fierceness that we should really be striking down the sin that seeks to tempt us away from God or charity. And so that, again, that insensitive faculty be, becomes used in this devilish fashion. And uh, it, it is particularly destructive and when we see it when one sees it happen i think one can only 
mourn it because of the the damage that is often done and is at times irreparable. A couple of other comments here too. Rebecca Therese, it seems like sound advice to me and could protect people from abuse by narcissists who try to make others dependent on them for self-esteem. Also, cults try to recruit people by love bombing. Humility and level-headedness can protect from these things. Yeah, it's sort of interesting where there is within the fathers a kind of balance here of avoiding these extremes and avoiding the subtle temptations to go in one direction or another, to maintain peace of mind and heart and one's identity being founded upon Christ, then we become less vulnerable to whether it's what you describe here as love bombing or uh, you know, this becoming dependent upon another for self-esteem because, you know, that they use praise in order to manipulate and draw a person in to eventually fulfilling or satisfying their own needs. Amale writes, how do we actually practice this other than slowing down time so much to allow space for a slower reaction? Or do we ask God for this grace to recognize it immediately in the moment? Well, that's a great question because it tells us that our faith life, our life of prayer, our love of virtue, our pursuit of virtue cannot be something that is episodic, that we have to seek to live our life in Christ, to put on the mind of Christ, to live the graced life so that the faculties that God has given to us, perfected by his grace, allow us to be able to see and respond to these realities with a kind of swiftness. If silence is needed, then that is where we go without having to overly analyze or ruminate on how to respond, because you're right. You know, the thoughts can flood our mind as well as our emotion. And unless our hearts have been formed by the grace of God, we are going to be drawn into the, the, the passion so we have to live our lives in Christ in order to, to be able to respond uh, to this and to respond to it in the moment. So it's an excellent question because I think it compels us to stop thinking about uh, our faith life as one aspect of our, our life or how we spend our time and, you know, or you know, one thing that is meant to really shape, you know, who we are rather than it having it shape everything of who we are and our identity. And it's the fact that we are so fragmented and allow our identity to be formed and shaped by so many different things that we are tossed around like a rag doll whenever these things emerge in our life and don't know up from down. When you know, when someone has said something to us that has been particularly piercing, we are no longer become level-headed, as it were. Rachel writes, "I'm tr thinking of how really truly seeing the other and ourselves as living icons, realizing our dignity, helps in a way to rein in inflated egos as we realize how it is a pure gift of God." 
the rains and the anger that can rise up in reaction to mistreatment by the humbling reality of whose image we are all made. Also, I wonder how we approach God and the saints, if how we see God, the way we pray, the way we experience our life in God affects how we react to praise or insult. Absolutely, to the last part of what you say here, I think that's everything that shapes the way that we respond. You know, if we are living in this constant communion with the saints, uh, and not only as, you know, outward observers of their actions and behaviors, as if we're holding them up to admire them from afar, but seeking to emulate them. And uh, we've heard it said already in these writings how there are times where relationships with certain saints begin to emerge uh, within our lives, and often for a reason. There's a connection with them by the way they live their life, the way they talk, the way they write, what the, how they've suffered, what they've what they've suffered that speaks to the heart in a very powerful way. And so we feel this connection with them and they are able to guide us through the, the trials uh, of our life. But seeing the, the dignity of others and seeing, you know, I think the powerful thing about the Desert Fathers is that they did become living icons of Christ. This is what, it's not only their writings that have this enduring quality. I think what gives them this enduring quality is that their lives were also a reflection of it. That in them, you could see all of this uh, as clear as day. And that's how it should be for us. I mean, the, the gospel should be made manifest in the way that we live our lives, the way that we talk, and the, the way that we treat others. Vanessa responds to that. St. Francis of Assisi talks about how we can go beyond what is natural, feelings towards others through the love of God, a mark of holiness. Right. You know, again, moving beyond natural virtue uh, to what we are called to in Christ. We're shown what human dignity really is uh, when it's lived in Christ. Oh, I lost one comment there. I don't know if it was erased or if I collapsed it. Hmm. I think that's everybody. Is there another comment after Vanessa? Okay, I think that's everything. So that brings us to three eight thirty five. So we're a little over time. So why don't we stop there for the evening? That was an awful lot. Uh, to digest for uh, for for the evening, and so we'll pick up there in two weeks. I'm going on retreat, and this time for myself next week, and so no Monday or Wednesday group. I'm headed out to California uh, for a discernment retreat and uh, some nice time in silence, and so I'll pray for all of you. Remember me on Monday. In particular, that's the anniversary of my ordination, the big 3-0. And so say a little prayer for me if you remember that day. Okay. Have a great night, everybody. And while we close as always with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.